In the early 1800s, there was this magnificent young Scottish pastor named Robert Murray McShane. Uh, he had a very productive ministry, especially for a man so young, a man in his 20s. Well, sadly and very suddenly, McShane died at the age of 29 of uh, typhus. And he really left a, a legacy far beyond his short life. We still talk about him and read his works. Well, just a few years after his death, there was another Scottish pastor who came to visit St. Peter's Church, where McShane had been the pastor. This was a man who was deeply discouraged. He was feeling like a failure in his ministry, and so he came in hopes of maybe finding some refreshment, some kind of encouragement, some kind of insight that would be a help to him. Well, it was a weekday, and so the only other person in the church was the custodian going about his duties. And so the pastor asked if this man might be willing to give him a little tour of the church, and of course he was delighted to. Well, it turns out that this custodian had been a member of the church for years. He had known Pastor McShane quite well. And so this discouraged pastor asked him, was there perhaps some kind of secret to McShane's success in ministry? Is there something he did that, that I could apply? Uh, well, the custodian smiled and said, come with me. Let me show you. And so he brought the man to the pastor's office, which was still very much like it was when McShane served there. And he said, why don't you sit in his chair? And so the pastor was honored. He was delighted. He sat down in the chair. And then the custodian said, now I want you to put your elbows up on the desk. So he did. Then he said, I want you to put your face in your hands. And so he did. And then the custodian said, now, weep. Weep for your congregation. Weep for your community. Weep for those who do not yet know Christ. This was his secret. You see, in other words, it wasn't a certain skill that made Pastor McShane great. It was a burning heart for the work of God to prevail around him. It was a love for God and a love for people that fueled him so much so that it regularly brought him to tears. Y'all, one of the, the temptations I deal with when it comes to faith is always drifting into um, just mechanism, making, making faith mechanical, to approach the Bible as a helpful guide full of examples and commands, but really nothing more. Not really the living Word of God, but just a, a great book. Uh, or maybe to approach prayer as a kind of checklist doing what I know I need to do and asking for God's help, uh, to approach relationships as kind of two-dimensional without really getting involved in the lives of others, without really uh, seeking 
empathy and loving and bearing burdens, but just kind of doing enough. It's mechanical. And y'all, that's very natural. I think it's very easy for us to drift into that, but it's, it, that's a far cry from true Christianity. Our faith engages the heart in a way that nothing else in the world can. No other emotion, no other experience can touch it. And, and really, I think we've seen that on every page. As we've walked through Paul's letter to the Philippians, it just jumps off the page. Paul has spoken at length now about the joys of knowing Jesus, the surpassing value of Christ. Paul rejoices in the Lord. Paul says he longs for the Philippian church with all the affection of Christ. There's nothing two-dimensional about that. And he prays for them. He says, I pray for you always, constantly, with joy and thanksgiving in my heart. There's nothing mechanical about Paul's relationship with God or with his brothers and sisters in the faith. And now today, we, we get... I think, a much deeper insight into why Paul was this way, into his heart, his pastoral heart, his heart as a friend, and, and plainly his heart as a Christian man. And my hope is that this scripture today will stir us. I need it to stir me. That God would give us hearts that break over the right things. And we don't fall into indifference. Um, but the, God would also give us hearts that abound in hope over the right things. And so that there would never be anything dry or cold or mechanical about our faith. But that it would be a living faith and a living hope as it's meant to be. Well, let's look at the scripture today and, and see what I mean. This is Philippians chapter 3 verse 17 through the end of the chapter, and we're just going to read the whole thing together before we break it down. Paul says, verse 17, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Now what we find in this paragraph is a huge contrast. I mean, there's a clear break. First, there's great lament and then great hope, great promise, great rejoicing. There's weeping and then there's celebrating. It's almost as if these two pieces don't really go together, but Paul knows what he's doing here. He always does. And so let's take one first and then the other in turn, okay? Let's look at the first, the lament, the weep, uh, the weeping, and then the rejoicing. So in verse 17, 
You notice what Paul says, follow my example and keep a close eye on those who walk accordingly. Now, this is a specific reference to what we saw last week. And so I want us to take a quick look again. What is the example that Paul is calling us to follow? Well, look at verse 10 of chapter 3. This is Paul's true ambition. He says, my, my goal in life, that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So the command for us in verse 17 is, Live with this very same ambition. Follow me in this. To have a mind and a heart that are fixed on Jesus and his glory. And not just mind and heart internally, but feet that walk this life. A new life that is lived for his glory. Total, all-consuming ambition and desire. And that for us has to be a conscious ambition. That's why Paul commands it, because it is not a given. It doesn't magically happen. If anything, we will drift away and even fall away from this ambition. We see that in verse 18. For many walk, many live, of whom I often told you and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Now, who is Paul talking about here? I don't think he's talking about opponents of Christianity, people who just outright reject Jesus and are, are uh, enemies of the church. Those people certainly exist, too. But I think that Paul has in view people who at some point have professed faith in Jesus. At some point they became part of the church or at least part of the larger Christian community and yet they have renounced Jesus with their lives regardless of what they ever said, regardless of what group they ever belonged to or became part of. Their lives tell the story. These are people who have chosen the opposite path of Paul. Paul, whose ambition is to know Christ and please Christ, these folks instead have made themselves enemies of the cross of Christ, meaning they have abandoned the message of the cross and the meaning, the purpose of the cross. And here are the clues to this or the reasons for this in verse 19. Paul explains, their end is destruction, not resurrection life with Christ. That's our end. That's the 
That is the end goal and promise for those who are in Jesus. There's resurrection life, but not for them, he says. There is for them eternal death. It's destruction. It's, a, it's, it's life apart from Christ forever. Why? Because their God, lowercase g, their God is their appetite. These are people whose sinful desires sit on the throne. They, in a sense, they worship their desires. Their God is their stomach, uh, other translations tell us. Um, because they, they live for their own passions and not for Christ. Their glory is in their shame, meaning they are proud of things that they ought to be ashamed of. All because they set their minds on earthly things. Y'all, it is possible for a person to profess faith in Jesus and even go to church and yet never actually trust Jesus and receive a new heart. It's not only possible, but it's, it, it's simply, it's always been that way, even from the beginning, even in Paul's day, and it certainly is true today as well. And therefore, even, y'all, even with a veneer of faith, the affections of their hearts the ambition, it hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. These are people, Paul says, who are still what they were. They are according to the flesh, Romans 8 says. And therefore they do not please God and they cannot please God. And so in the end, Paul says, they show themselves to be enemies of the cross of Christ. They are rejecting the message of the cross, the meaning of the cross, the power of the cross. They may profess Jesus, but they only love and worship themselves. <clears throat> now, how does that make us feel to read that? To consider that there are perhaps a great many people still today, who fall into that same category. How does that make us feel? We know how Paul feels about it, because he tells us in verse 18, I tell you this now, weeping. He's in tears. It stirs Paul deep in his heart to know that people are making shipwreck of the faith. They are denying the grace of Jesus. And Paul, right here, as he weeps, he doesn't just have a personal attachment to certain people. He's weeping very broadly for the very same thing that God weeps over, that Jesus wept over. There's a place in, in Luke 19 where Jesus is entering into the city of Jerusalem for the last week of his earthly ministry before he's crucified. He walks into Jerusalem and as he surveys the city from just outside, listen to this, Luke 19, verse 41. When Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. The, the, these are the people who should have loved the Lord and lived wholeheartedly for him. These are the people of Jerusalem. And yet instead they had chosen their own way. 
And, and Jesus, rather than Jesus saying, serves you right, I can't believe you. Instead of Jesus putting them in their place, he weeps. The heart of God, y'all, the heart of God is not stoic, unmoved, unaffected by our choices and decisions and our actions. No, neither Jesus nor Paul look at people who are lost and say, well, you had your chance, not my problem. No, because to be a Christian is to be heartbroken over sin and lostness. And I need to hear that more than anybody else in this moment. To be a Christian, not just to be a pastor or a missionary. To be a follower of Jesus is to be heartbroken over sin and lostness. Our own sin, of course, but also the sin of the world. We, our hearts are broken over what we used to be in our lostness, yes, but over the present lostness of our community and even those we know and love. Now, I, I know in the time in which we live, there is constantly this feeling of a culture war where the lines are drawn very sharply between people, between ideologies, politics, lifestyle, you name it. The lines are sharp and, and they are becoming more and more defined every day. And what can result from that is very much an us versus them mentality. We see that, don't we? It's so clear. We delight in the idea that we are right and others are wrong. And we so easily um, divide over it and even demonize the other side because they become the enemy to us. It's us versus them. But y'all, I, I hope we take away from this scripture today a different perspective, a better way. Paul weeps over these people. He calls them enemies of the cross of Christ, but he does not delight in that in any sense. It doesn't please him to draw lines and say, ha ha, those people over there, they've missed their chance. They've lost their way. Shame on them. And to make a distinction between the good guys and the bad guys. No, Paul weeps for them. He weeps over the fact that Jesus is not their Lord and Savior. That, that Jesus is not being honored and glorified in their lives as he ought to be. There, there's no us versus them going on right here. And at least for me, this is one of those things I really need to pray that God will develop within me a heart that breaks over the things that God weeps for. Remember the, the secret of Robert Murray McShane's ministry. Not skill, not strategy. A heart that wept for people to know and cherish Christ. Face in his hands. Weak and weeping. Only you, God, can do this. And begging him that he would. When we read what Paul says in verse 18 and 19, um, it's meant to stir our hearts. And if it doesn't, then 
May God give us the grace um, to see differently, to think differently, to draw the lines differently, and to care for what God cares about. Now, y'all, at this, at this point, the, the scripture takes a very sharp turn from negative to positive. And it may feel too sharp. <laughs> it's hard to even preach about it. There's no way to slowly round this corner. It's just a sharp turn. Um, it's almost as if something gets lost in translation here. But we see right here in Paul's heart a capacity for both weeping and rejoicing, for both lament and hope, held together simultaneously, just as we are meant to be heartbroken for those who reject Christ, they don't know Jesus, we are also purified in the hope that we've been given. There's a weeping and a rejoicing that, that go, in a sense, hand in hand right here. And so the contrast is obvious, but it's not, uh, it's not meant to be separated out. It's all coming from the same heart. Look at verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. <clears throat> For whatever reason... The people Paul is weeping over, they have rooted themselves deeply into this world, deeply into their own desires and the things of earth. And this is always our temptation. We have to be honest about it. This is our temptation too, because that is, that's what we can grasp in the here and now. It's the things of earth, the temporary things, the tangible things that we can see and taste and touch and count. The world is right here. It's beneath our feet. It's right at our fingertips. And so all of our appetites, in theory, can be met and consumed in the here and now. That's why it's so easily um, uh, fallen into. That's why it's such a, 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 a tremendous constant temptation for us all. But Paul is making clear, even the, the very real and present temptations of the here and now are false and fleeting. It's all fool's gold. For our citizenship, our true belonging, is not here, but it's in heaven. We are the people of God, and therefore we live heavenward. Therefore, we are eagerly waiting from heaven the return of a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we don't see on the surface just how significant that statement is. It, we understand it spiritually, of course. I, I think we do. But we don't see it in the same way that the Philippians would have seen this and felt this. Um, as we've walked through this this letter, we've talked about it um, here and there, that the Philippians, they are Roman citizens. They don't live in Rome proper. That's 800 miles away. That's where Paul is writing from, Rome. But the Roman Empire 
This was the greatest, most expansive empire in the world at this time, and Philippi was a part of it. And the Roman emperor, in this case it was a man named Nero, he was referred to, listen, he was referred to as Lord and Savior. That was the Roman emperor's place in the minds and hearts of his subjects. Lord and Savior. Isn't that crazy? The, the idea, though, was that he had been, whoever the emperor was, he had been divinely appointed by the pagan gods to rule and to save the people. How's that for political power? That was his position, and that was how he was thought of, and that's, why, that's how people paid allegiance to Rome and to the emperor. Now, I hope that we see just how radical Paul's message is in light of that political reality. When Paul says, we are citizens of heaven, not Rome, and we have a Savior and Lord, but it's not Nero. It's Jesus Christ. We have a true home and a true Savior. Everything else is just dust in the wind. Everything else is temporary. It's fleeting. It's, it's of the earth. There's nothing Nero can do for you. There's no trust that we ought to place in him or in any other human authority. To be, to be a citizen of Rome granted the Philippians certain privileges and rights, and I'm sure that they were nice, but they were nothing compared to their true citizenship. And see, this is, this is what makes the promise of verse 21 so truly powerful. Jesus, Paul says, will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. His glory. We're citizens of heaven. We're waiting for our Savior to return and to stake his eternal claim over all the universe forevermore. And he's going to transform us in that case. Our humility will become glory. Now, for, for any human being living on this earth, that ought to stir us. But, but I want you to think about, just at the, at the level of the Philippians where they stood, where everyone around them is living for the present. The Roman Empire is the peak for them. It's the top rung of the ladder. This is as good as it gets. And our hero, our savior, our Lord Nero is going to take care of us. Oh no, but in reality, we're so frail, we're so weak. Everything is fleeting and empty. This is the body of our humble state for those who are willing to see it. This is what it is to be human. Y'all, here's the truth. Read Ecclesiastes for more on this. But let me just summarize. No matter how wise or how strong we are, no matter how rich or how powerful we may become, even if you are Nero himself, the truth is we are so very fragile. We are temporary. We are prone to sickness and death, an aneurysm or a car accident, an economic downturn, a smear campaign. Y'all, the truth about us is we are one bad moment away from destruction. 
And even if we avoid all that somehow, and we luck out and coast on into old age, we still suffer the loss of everything in the end. We all know that. We don't get to take any of it along with us. And I'm not, I'm not saying that to be callous. It's simply the truth. We are humble in our bodies. We exist in a humble state. That's Paul's point. Even as Christians, the life we live in the here and now, we, we exist in a, in a humility, a fragility that we ourselves cannot remedy. But consider for the, the Christians in Philippi, it's even worse than that. It's not just that we're generally fragile as human beings. But these are people who consciously are living against the grain of, of their culture. They're saying, Jesus is Lord, not Nero. Do you think that that got them any brownie points with their neighbors and with local politicians? <laughs> no, they are being maligned for their faith. They are daily denying themselves. They're dying to themselves in order to know more of Christ. That's what Philippians 3 is all about. And Paul, as he writes this letter, Paul is sitting in prison. There's, there's clear, abundant persecution that's, that's taking place here. It's not just normal human fallenness and frailty. Christians are receiving the, the, the short end of the stick in, in basically every way here. It's not just normal human struggle. It's the humiliation of living counterculturally. But here, this is what makes the promise so glorious. That at a human level, but especially as those who follow Jesus Christ humbly and with self-denial, Jesus will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. Our end is not destruction. Our end is glory. Y'all, for a Christian to suffer and struggle in this present world, this is the worst it's ever going to get. And that for us ought to be a resounding encouragement. This is as bad as it'll ever get. Because a transformation is coming when Jesus himself will outfit you with his glory. And y'all, this is that that idea is so immeasurably great. We we really can't even picture it. We get little hints throughout the scripture, but to actually picture this in our mind's eye, to actually fathom what we're being promised here, I don't think we can take it in. It's beyond us, and it's meant to be. If we could hold it in our minds, then it, and it, would, it, would, it would be finite. It wouldn't be all that great. But to be transformed into the glory, the shared glory of Jesus Christ, is something for us that we, we cannot possibly hold in our minds. That's how great it is. And y'all, it's a promise that can't be threatened. It can't be lost. Because Jesus Christ will do it. He will fulfill it by the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Jesus is the true king of the universe. We see that promise given to us in the middle of Philippians 2. He has the name above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. He has the power to subject everything and everyone to himself. 
And therefore, all that he determines to do will be done, just as he sees fit. We possess a humble state now, but the king of the universe promises future glory. He will do it. This is why Paul says back in verse 14, I press on for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I spend my entire life, all of my energy, all of my ambition aiming for his glory. Because in the end, the things of earth won't matter. In the end, the temporary fleeting ambitions will be just that. Only his glory will I share and delight in forever. And therefore, I want that to be my aim in the here and now. Y'all, I, I mentioned this a minute ago <clears throat> as we close. Uh, it feels to me like Paul's weeping and his rejoicing are coming from the same place. They seem so very far apart. There's such a great contrast between verses 18 and 19 and verses 20 and 21, of course, yes. But, but from the same place, a desire in Paul that people would know the grace and the glory of Jesus. He laments for those who don't. He rejoices over those who do. And this is what it, for us, comes down to. One central idea, one central truth and promise and hope. That we do have a Savior. The world has a Savior who has laid down his own life in order to make us alive to God. A gift that we receive by faith. And so it's not arrogant for Paul, as he speaks of all this, to look at us and say, follow my lead on this. Imitate my ambition. I know Jesus Christ, and his glory is my chief aim, and so follow me there. Because his desire is so rich and true and pure that it brings him to tears for those who have missed it. And it brings him to tears of joy for those who possess it. Y'all, um, of all the things I see in the Apostle Paul that I want to imitate as I read through Philippians, um, this is one that I very easily walk past. I'm all about the rejoicing, not so much the weeping. I don't like to dwell on the negative. I don't like to think about things that are, that are grievous. But all this comes from the same place. All this comes from the same place. All this is part of what it means to be a citizen of heaven. I mean, think about it. To be a citizen of heaven, that, there's, it clearly means that we're always looking ahead in hope and expectation. We're eagerly awaiting our Savior, Jesus Christ, to come and transform our humble body into a body of glory to share with him. Y'all, but, but it also, to be a citizen of heaven, is not just what is about to come in the future. It also changes the here and now. It changes how we think and how we live today. It changes how we view the world. It changes how we love others. To be a citizen of heaven changes how we grieve and what we grieve for. We don't just grieve that the world is a nasty place sometimes or that bad things happen. Of course we do. But we grieve most of all 
for those who do not know the hope that we have. Because that is our only hope. And, and this is... This is something that we can't, at a, some, at a certain point, we, we run up against a, a, a limit on how much of this we can teach. Uh, I, I know what this scripture says. Um, but that doesn't mean that I feel what it feels, that I feel what Paul feels. And that's what I want. That's what I truly need. And so we all, we, we, we ought to appeal to God for this. Um, like Robert Murray McShane the best thing I can do is put my face in my hands and weep and ask God, give me the kind of heart that mirrors the heart of Jesus. Give me the kind of heart that, that we see in the Apostle Paul, who so treasures Jesus Christ and the hope of heaven that he weeps for those who don't know it and he rejoices over those who do and that all of his life is consumed by a single passion um, that guides him here and now and certainly holds his hope for the great day to come. Um, I just need to pray, and, and I want to do that now. I want us to pray that we would become like this. Um, so let's do that together. Uh, Father, I'm, I'm so I'm burdened personally, uh, by my lack of, um, of what I see in the scripture today. I, Lord, and I confess, I, I care, I care, I care about people, I care about your work in the world. I, I, um, it's not lost on me, I care about it, um, but I seldom weep over it. And so, Lord, I, I pray for the kind of burden that Paul felt, which was merely an echo of the burden of Jesus Christ, which means it's your burden, Father, that you do not delight in lostness. You delight in life, true and abundant life. And so, Father, I pray for myself. I pray for us. We're not all a weeping kind of people. We all express emotions differently, sure. But, Lord, we can all have the same burden. That for those who um, have close proximity to the things of faith and yet live um, apart from Christ, Father, break our hearts. Give us a passion, Lord, to continue to love them, to pursue them, to proclaim grace to them. If perhaps you would grant them repentance and lead them to the knowledge of the truth and bring them to Jesus Christ. And Lord, let it be our, our true and abundant hope that, uh, that amplifies that burden. Knowing, Lord, what we do have, not not over and against other people as if it's us versus them. It's not, Lord. But what we have, our true treasure and joy, our true promise, because of our, our powerful and gracious Savior, 
that, Lord, it would all reside in the same place in our hearts. To know you, to love you, Lord, to live in eager anticipation as citizens of heaven for all that you have done and are doing and certainly all, Lord, that you have promised to do to transform us from humility into glory. Lord, that you would that you'd capture our hearts with this truth. And Lord, that we would have no mechanical understanding of this faith. That we would have no uh, cold indifference to these realities. Not the reality of lostness around us and not the reality of glory that awaits us. But Lord, that we would be so captured by Jesus Christ that we would just fall all over ourselves to make him known, to walk with him, to follow the example of Paul, and to keep a close eye, a joyful eye, on those who walk in like manner. Lord, as we are citizens of heaven, Lord, keep us pointed, keep us focused on that great day. Fix all our hope on Christ there, yes, but let it change how we live here as well. Let it change how we how we think, how we decide, how we speak, and let it change how we grieve and what we grieve for. Um, Father, only by your grace will we become this way. And that's why we must ask for it. Lord, let us be a people who want nothing more than to see your saving work all around us as we look ahead, Lord, to the, to the culmination of this work in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that our minds are not set on earthly things, but that we have a, an infinitely greater and immeasurable glory given to us. And so, Father, by faith, I pray that we would uh, hold tightly to Christ. And Lord, would you change our hearts each step of the way. We ask it in his wonderful name. Amen.